Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Matt Johnson. Matt, how are you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here. And I'm, I've been really looking forward to this. And I'm going to share, if you don't mind, I'm going to talk a little bit first about what brought me to you is that uh, I was looking up a street that I lived on as a kid after my parents got divorced. Uh, my mom bounced around from house to house and ended up on a street called Rockland Street in Northwest Philly by this place called Wayne Junction. And it was, it was an economically depressed area, to say the least. And I was looking up at this mansion, the, the, the park near me where we'd walk our dog and sometimes go sledding. There was uh, a mansion called Luden Mansion. And I was on that Wikipedia page and it said, just by in passing, it says, the Matt Johnson's novel, Loving Day, takes place here. I was like, don't know Matt Johnson, don't know Loving Day, but uh, you know, click to your page. And it said that you, among other things, uh, won a whole bunch of awards as a writer. And you also went to Green Street Friends, which is where my stepbrother and stepsister went. And I thought, I wonder if they know each other. And then I was like, all right, let's look up Loving Day. And Loving Day just had me transfixed. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing book that hopefully we'll talk about more than just saying, and saying why it's amazing. And that led me to read your book, Pym, which led me to read your graphic novel, Incognito, which led me to read your graphic novel, Incognito Renaissance. And I've not read a novel in a while. I, I've been reading a lot of nonfiction. And I just couldn't stop reading your stuff. It's for one thing, Loving Day is all about, a lot of it takes place around where I grew up. And a lot of it is about you being, you, I, I believe I read an interview is that that was your book of coming out as biracial. And um, when I was on Rockland Street, we were one of two or three families that were white. It was otherwise all black. It was, I mean, they gave out in the summers, they give out, um, welfare sandwiches, which I loved because it was this bologna with bright yellow mustard and the mushy bread that as a kid, I really loved. And you described it in the opening sentence, I think, if I remember right, of Loving Day says it's the ghetto. And I've been exploring race because talking about sustainability, you have to talk about race. And I'm a straight white male living in a uh, Greenwich village, a nice, nice part of New York city and Ivy league degrees. And so People have often said, Josh, your voice has been heard enough. And so I've been looking this stuff up. So this is me talking for a bit about what brought me to you. And I'd love to talk about um, your books because they're, they're wonderfully, I, I heard in an interview that people describe parts of them as funny. And I was like, I think it's, it's a really wry humor that I was like, this is really interesting and very, I believe, well-researched and, but most of all, very personal and very open of your vulnerability. And I'd love to talk to you about Rockland Street and Germantown and Wing Junction and Chelton Avenue, if you're game, the R8 and the Maplewood Mall and all these different areas around there. Sure. Also your writing process, because I'm writing my book now. Uh, any of these things, something you want to start with first? Um, have you been to, to Wayne Junction lately? I've not. I've been, uh, I mean, I've, I've taken the R8 sometimes when I take the, I take New Jersey Transit in and switch to Saturday, right. sometimes go to my dad's house. So he's in the R8, the, the other line. Yeah. Well, what, the wild thing is um, Wayne Junction is now a uh, kind of a, a nightlife center for Northwest Philadelphia. They opened up a, a microbrewery right on, on the corner. And then uh, there's also a new barbecue place. And then there's an outdoor music uh, slash, um, you know, food cart 
place. And uh, I, w- I was completely shocked to, to see that. But um, my friends in the area, you know, uh, go to them and they brought me out there. And I, I just uh, I was kind of stunned. That is stunning because that's like that was danger. Yeah, that's the thing. It kind of still is. <laughs> I mean, it's not like it's not like it's a completely different place. I mean, like when I was writing about Germantown, like one of the things that comes up um anytime you're talking about something of your childhood and you're matching it up with actual facts, there's always going to be uh, dramatic differences between how you were interpreting things going on and what was actually going on. And, you know, um, parts of Germantown, you you mentioned Rockland street, that area, the more Southern part of it, the Eastern part of it were much more working class, much more poverty. And then towards the, the West side of Germantown, it was there was more wealth, so it was just kind of it was very kind of mixed uh, in that sense. But it, but because we are all within walking distance of each other, it didn't feel kind of you know mm-hmm. segregated uh, economically segregated in that way because everyone was walking through everywhere else. But it's uh, yeah, it's a neat it's a neat place to write about. It was a great place to have grown up. When you're when you're talking about there's there's a bunch of thing of phenomena that like that we both experienced in that area. One was the 1970s divorce crisis. Um, I don't know if it was a crisis, but it was happening. Like, you know, every Gen X person I talked to his parents, you know, um, were divorced. But the other part was this kind of this, this post uh, segregation moment. And uh, Germantown was a big part of that. There was a black working class um, part and there was a hippie white working class part. And there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, kind of crossovers between the two that were, they kind of defined my childhood, you know. And what was your, when you call it the ghetto, did I remember right that you called it the, the heart of Black Philly, Germantown? Like, what was it? Because for me, it was, uh, it was normal. And, but for a lot of people, it, it's something that they've never seen. A lot of people that I know now, it's something they've never seen. It was, uh, was it, do you remember it being scary, fun? Because I remember, I mean, I remember like people playing basketball a lot because Dr. J was really big then. This is the 70s. And. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it was, it was, there was times it was, you know, it was scary. And I think it affected everyone's stress levels and anxiety because you didn't know there was very, there was a lot of very desperate people around and a lot of very desperate nihilistic people around who had nothing to lose. Um, but most people were just working people trying to, you know, get through their day. When, when I, when I say it's a ghetto, what I, what I mean then is there's a large population there that is unable to live anywhere else. And they're being held in, in the position they are, uh, by economics largely and also by race. And so, you know, the, the rest of Philly was not coming through Germantown. It was a, it was a, like a, um, you know, a, a uh, a kind of a pocket off to the side of the rest of Philly. Like it didn't, we didn't have restaurants that people came to, you know, or, or like shopping of any kind that people came to. It was just, you know, uh, residential and people were largely kind of, um, you know, entrenched because there wasn't a lot of other places to go. Even though it was an area that was in flux because the area that you're talking about was was uh, Italian and Polish not long before we grew up. And I remember my dad driving through those little narrow uh, row house streets because it was an old Italian lady that would make uh, Sicilian pizza 
um, that he would buy for like a sheet up for like 10 bucks. And there was, and I remember across the street from me, there was, there was a, an Irish family that was like the mom, the elderly mom was from Ireland and they had bright red, red hair and they were the last white people on the block. So like Germantown going through a ton of flags. I like playing basketball. We used to go to the boys, boys club. And when you're in the boys club or the YMCA, you look up and there'd be pictures of the, of the champion basketball teams of the past. And it was, it was a real eye opener about where we were because there was a bunch of those champions who were all Jewish, and there was a bunch of those champions who were all Irish, and then almost immediately a bunch of them that were black. So, you know, it was a, it was a, our, my era when I look back there was just a snapshot of an evolving neighborhood that's, you know, continuing to evolve. It's not, I'm, do I read a passion or, I mean, it sounds like you did a lot of research beyond just your personal experience. And it's also making me think of the research that must have gone into PIM, which I think was a long time writing. And yeah. You know, it's weird. I think like um, with Germantown, I did do some research at different points, but mostly it was just being there and growing up there and watching stuff and then picking up information later that made sense of things that like whether reading history uh, of Philadelphia or history of the Revolutionary War, history, all those things that were out of context that I experienced, they was able to sew them into a larger context, you know, around um I like to be able to do a book like that where I know a lot about it. And then when I go to write it, I'm not looking anything up. It's just part of stored information. With Pym, which was about a, an imagined sequel to Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, uh, that was a that was a ton of research. And that that actually, the way I did research for that was I, I was teaching literature at Bard College in upstate New York. And I started teaching classes that I knew would help me write the book. Uh-huh. So I did a book, um, uh, I did a class based around Toni Morrison's essay playing in the dark where she looks at the African presence in American literature. And we read every single book that she mentions in the, uh, uh, in the essay. And so like stuff like that did, you know, looked at enlightenment literature and race in, in the 18th and, and 19th century. Um, so my day job helped me get like the, the weight behind it. But when I go to write, there's not like a bunch of notes that are all around. It's, it's, it's the accrued information and just kind of uh, coming out of that place. What's it like revisiting I mean, what was your experience revisiting your, your childhood? Because I think you started writing it, I mean, several decades afterward. And so you're revisiting something. And I, I know that for me, looking back, I haven't gone back there yet. And I expect like next time I'm visiting my dad, I'll probably go by Rockland Street and and just ride around there. Uh, but you've done it. Was it, I mean, I'm also, do I read A Passion for Place or... Uh, I mean, there's lots of themes in your books about about place, about America, about race, about men and women, I think, relationships. Yeah. I used to kind of specifically scoff at, like, writers who talked about place when I first started writing. But then I just found myself writing about place. So, you know, (laughs) like, I I think it it wasn't much place. Uh, In my mind, it's more history and people. And that's place, right? And so... Like the history of why, you know, why all these things that I took for granted as being the way they are, why that I, that even happened in the first place. And like, I think there's a, an age you hit where you realize that you are not um, separate from history, but you are just, you know, a part of it. And so many of your assumptions are based on things that you, you know, no knowledge of at all. So that was fascinating looking at that. The other thing I think that's neat looking now is that at, at the past, 
is that increasingly, like I always wanted to get on a time machine and go to a different era, you know, but what I, what I found is my body is basically a time machine. Like I remember a world that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. you know, that existed at one time, just does not exist anymore. And I remember ways of like people being and assumptions that they had and even accents that just don't exist anymore. And so being able to watch that and look back, it, it, it does create this, um, this time machine feeling. When I did, and I did PIM, I actually pronounced it loud. And I, I went there on a school trip and, uh, you know, I remember the trip very um, in a very detailed manner. Even like I remember the the my second grade teacher was the one driving the bus, and she accidentally knocked out a rear view mirror of one of the cars on Germantown Avenue. So ever ever since when I drive, I'm just trying not to knock someone's rear <laughs> mirror out. But you know, we went to in the middle of this very you know tough working class area. Um, there was this just massive mansion. And, uh, you know, we went inside. It was just like it was a more dramatic version of things that were already I already knew about in the area. But it was even more so because it was a it was a working class area that had these urban mansions basically yeah. in it. Most of them were cut up into uh, single room occupancy or apartments. Then um, I took that as standard. But when you get to Loudoun, one, it's in pristine shape or in the sense that it's not been cut up. It was I don't think ever in pristine shape. But but it also it's on about three acres so it's like separate. And the only other ones, the only ones that still have that kind of space on them are mostly, uh, you know, museums at this point, the former country houses of the Revolutionary Era, um, Revolutionary War Era. So, you know, when, as a person who's mixed and when I wanted to write about mixed stuff, I realized that I'd grown up in a neighborhood that kind of personified my identity and that there was a mix of, of African-American and European-American. It was a mix, you know, a, a product of different like economic um, pressures. There's also a vastly disproportionate number of uh, uh, biracial kids uh, in Germantown and and the neighboring uh, uh, more middle class neighborhood Mount Airy um, when I was growing up as well. So you know it just seemed like in order in order for me to figure out that part that I had to physically go back to you know my actual past and home and, and make sense of it. Oh, this tells me I got to go back there and. Uh... I read your writings very personal and and very vulnerable to talk about race, to talk about your, um, how people perceive you in different ways, how you it sounds like your perception of yourself has changed. And this is something that I'm looking to write about. And so I'm curious, did you intend to, I read you as, as using the writing process as a way of exploring yourself and then putting that on the page for everyone else to see, which can be very scary, but also mm-hmm. I would imagine very rewarding. And was that a goal of yours? I mean, I, it looked like it was, but I'm not sure. Yeah, but the, a different order. Like I wanted to do the writing process first, and what I had to learn was that the you know the only thing that would work with me would be my absolute strongest you know um, work. And to do that, I had to basically lay myself on the table and chop myself up and, and serve myself like sashimi. Like it had to be that kind of uh, fresh and and you know. And when you do that you get an emotional center that resonates and, and there's a cost. There's it's, it is kind of a human sacrifice of self in some ways, you know, to, to get that work to be, you reach the intensity you want it to be. You can't really fake it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I realized I had to be personal a long time ago. It doesn't, it's weird. Cause it really doesn't, I, I think there's such a compartmentalization going on in my head that I don't think of it as being personal or vulnerable. A lot of times, particularly with fiction. 
because if I thought about it, it would be, if I thought like I'm writing this sentence and 30,000 people are going to read it or 50,000 people are going to read it, then I would just psych myself out. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so I just don't think about that. And when it comes out, when people come up to me, you know, and, and, and are like, oh, I really, I connected to this part of it. I honestly forgot that I even shared it. And, and it's kind of like a surprise. Like, I'm, I'm just always, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm always surprised by it. Is the feeling while you're doing it uh, dissociated or is it also, is it curious? Is it cathartic? And do you, are you glad you, I mean, yeah, are you glad you did it? Well, yeah, I'm glad I did it. I don't, um, I don't know if it's cathartic. I really don't. I don't know if it's, it's, it's self-destructive or cathartic. I really can't tell. Um, I feel like the transcendent part for me is getting into this moment where you're just creating something that's like, if you really get into the mode, you're creating something that's better than your conscious mind could have even come up with. You're tapping into something that's, that's, um, part of your subconscious and it, and it becomes, um, it, you, it becomes great, you know, and that, that's the, that's the, the goal. And that's the, what I get from it, you know, um, when the book comes out, that that can be my understanding of what the book is can get reinforced by the critics or not reinforced by the critics, but still what mattered was um, just being able to capture that kind of, you know, glowing orb of, of kind of art. Um, And yeah, again, a lot of, there's a lot of compartmentalization with that and a lot of, um, uh, which I don't think if I, if I didn't do it that way, I probably couldn't do the process at all. The dissociation, the compartmentalization. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I don't. I really have no desire to share all this stuff with with tons of people. I really don't. Uh, it it's I'm doing it um, because I want to create art, you know, um, and that's the price. So, uh, which is a bit you know different. Now, again, that's just with me. Like I teach writers pretty much full time, and I have for the last twenty years. And people have a variety of different motivations. And a lot of people, there's a lot of people who want the catharsis of sharing. So I don't, I think I'm more the exception in that regard. But for me, it's just actually about, like, I want to create the best piece of art I can before I die. And so every time I'm doing that, I'm sacrificing as much as I can to create the best work possible. Just as a life goal, like it's a game kind of, you know, I don't, I have no illusions that everything isn't going to turn to dirt. But still, as a life goal, that's that's the goal. So do you have the, to me, it feels like a skill. The, the longer that I write, the more that I find in me that's worth writing about or that's, that, that it's worth delving into and, and sharing. And that so I think of it as a skill that as I do more, like what, the current book that I'm working on is on sustainability leadership. And originally I was writing a book for how people can lead themselves and others to live more sustainably. That's not obviously going to be about race. And, but then I realized I couldn't help talk about it, but then to, to treat race. But then when I started treating it, virtually everyone I spoke to would, say, would, would look at, I think they would look at me and say, there's certain things, Josh, you just can't possibly understand. And I was like, the person you think I am is not, you're, you're ta- I don't know who you think you're talking to, but it's not me. Or you, know, you have an idea of someone that's different than me. I have no idea what the existence is, the, the thing that you, the person that you think I am, I have no contact with that person. I don't know who that person is. And then I realized I have to share this so people know why 
like I'm doing things like I haven't flown since 2016. My apartment, I, I disconnected from the electric grid. I just went over to the circuit breaker and opened it up so that I'm, I'm off the grid for now in my fifth month. And people think that like I'm doing some curious thing. Like it's, oh, that's kind of interesting. That's kind of, uh, but you know, what one person does doesn't matter. And they don't see this inner passion that's in me. And for me to understand where that passion was coming from, I have to go back to my child and I have to come back to my racial identity. And I have to express that in a way post George Floyd that people are not going to say, look, Josh, your voice has been heard a million times before. And it's scary. And I think for me necessary, I think it'll work, but I'm not sure. And your books woke something like that up in me uh, or did something that I'm looking to do. So I'm kind of curious about this process about laying oneself bare on an issue that I'm, in the process of doing. Well, one of the, one of the things to keep in mind, like, like I tell my students they can write about like anything. My the students I have are largely graduate students who are pre pre professional. They basically have manuscripts that are up to the point of publication, and now they're they're coming to work with you know master craftsmen to figure out how to get to the place they need to be, and also how to create a life as a writer. So you know, I teach at the University of Oregon now. We get about 400 applicants for five spots. Mm. Um, and so it's very hard to get in. When you get in, everyone who comes in like is is most likely will have a career uh, writing. And so one of the things that comes up- Fiction, nonfiction, both? This is fiction. Uh, I've taught nonfiction in the past, but this is fiction. Uh-huh. And one of the things that um, it comes up is this question of like, uh, can I write about this or that, particularly for white uh, writers, um, but also for male writers or writing about female writers females for women <laughs> but like one of the things that, that that's there is that if you're in a privileged position and you're and you are in the social food chain above the the other the other people and you can write about but you, it takes us a lot of work to be able to do it to understand the full context of it and a lot of humility you know to understand the full context of, of what's going on and so like a lot of times when we, when they're working it's kind of like in the drafts that they have, it's like pushing them to, to you know, meet that challenge of, uh, you know, having more empathy, but also just it, there's empathy in the sense of emotional empathy and there's empathy in the sense of informational empathy. And informational empathy is actually more important. It's not about caring for somebody. It's about having the respect to, you know, in, in great detail what they're they're dealing with. And also listening to them about, you know, um, what they're dealing with. So, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm not going to write stories where I'm not going to have uh, women characters, you know, but I have a responsibility as a man, uh, particularly like, you know, a cishet man to, um, you know, do the work so that I can earn it on the page. So I want to go back and get the, the concept of informational empathy is to, this comes out, do I read right that this comes out through research, through learning what, um, like factually they've gone through that, what the world looks like from their perspective or what informs that perspective? Yeah. I think of informational empathy being two, two parts. One, um, the respect to do all the research on what's going on, not just the moment, but the moment behind the moment and the moment it impacted that, right? So like having all that research immediately gives you a better understanding of what's happening, right? But it doesn't give you all of an understanding of what's happening. 
because the other part of it is um, listening to the people who actually experienced it and respecting that what their you know that their perspective on this is is uh, you know firsthand account and that you know in, that you need to figure out how to get that information that you've gotten and factor it through what people are saying happened and find something you know closer to truth be, between the two of them so for example when I was, I wrote about the Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I had a, a fictional story that, went, that took place in Hurricane Katrina, and so you know I'm not from New Orleans. I love New Orleans, uh, but as a person who visits, not as a person who lives there. And so you know I know all the things that happened, where um, I did at the time during Hurricane Katrina, all the failures, all the specific moments. But it is very different to know all those moments and then talk to the people directly who experienced it. And so like. Some of the things I missed when I was just researching were the more mundane moments, you know, because that all I'm looking at is the top 10, like, worst things that happen. But then when you actually talk to people, you know, you have people who are dying on one block and on the next block, they're like, yeah, well, we had enough food. And, you know, after the first night, we just kind of waited it out and we barbecued. For, you know what I mean? So it's like a, the, the, all those realities you can't get from information. You have to get from listening to them. And the other thing is it's with that is there's a tendency because we have, we might, you know, know a lot about a subject and we've researched a lot about a subject to uh, hear people who say things that contradict our understanding of the subject and think that they must be wrong. And that's that's a failure of, of, of empathy in that sense. It might, it, the question is never, are they right or they're wrong? The question is, why are they feeling that way, right? So, um, yeah, and this comes up with fiction a lot because otherwise you're just writing about yourself. Uh, so, you know, I've had... I had a, a student, you know, who's interested in writing about uh, Guatemalan refugees. Um, he had done all these books of, Gu of Guatemalan refugees, but um, he hadn't talked to people directly and he hadn't visited a lot of places. And, you know, once he did that, his it wasn't that it was a completely different thing he encountered, but there was a dramatic shift. So, again, like. I don't subscribe to the idea that certain people can can write about uh, or, you know, comment about certain things. However, the more distance it is for himself, particularly if it's more distance in the sense that the experiences for people who are behind you on the social ladder, the more responsibility, you know, it entails and the more challenging it is, you know, to be honest. So when I this I'm thinking when I go to Rockland Street next time, I should talk to people and stop and, and just get the feel for it and. My mom went there a little while ago and actually talked to, she went to the family down the block where she was friends with someone and the family's still there. The, the mother, I think, wasn't there. But I should take inspiration from this and, and, and visit and talk and get those views. You should. But, you know, another thing to keep in mind is that you being on the block and some of the black kids who are on the block, you're both on the block at the same time, but you're, you have very different social realities. Yeah, very different. Because you left. Yeah. You know? And so the like the key of being in a ghetto is not being able to leave. So the fact that you were able to leave and, and establish a middle class, you know, upper middle class, whatever life, an educated life, makes it so you have these things that in one sense look parallel, but in another sense aren't at all. Because what what defines their life is the fact that most of them are still there. And a lot of them are dealing with, you know, lifetimes of the stress. And also, you know, as somebody who's also conscious about what's happening on our planet right now. Um, a lot of them are cut off from green spaces, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So they don't get to de-stress. There's one uh, green space in that neighborhood in, in southern Germantown part we're talking about, east, east, close to eastern Germantown, and that's the hollow. And when I and that's on Germantown Avenue, right above Wayne Junction. 
when I was, there's a basketball court there and there's a little park above it. When I was a kid, I thought it meant the hollow because it was like burned out like a crack house because it was like one of the roughest places in the neighborhood. You would not randomly go into that park, you know, unless you were specifically going to play basketball at a certain time when your Mm -hmm. friends were there, you know, so like they're experiencing all that. And they're, you know, for me too, like, um, my, I was in that, I was there, but I was, my mother was getting a graduate degree, you know, in social work. My dad was a, was a geologist, uh, white geologist. So like, I knew even when I was in school, I knew I'm getting out of here. You know what I mean? Or I'm having the chance to go and do all these other lives. Most of these people I'm in school with at Philadelphia public schools, they don't. And they're, and most of them are not going anywhere. You know, so it creates this like sort of dramatically different, you know, vibe um, when we look back and see like what our shared experiences and what they what, what our experiences aren't actually shared. You know, how about you're also into Green Street Friends, and I had a lot of friends who went to friend schools. Was there big Quaker influence there? Of oh yeah, um, yeah. No, the private school system in Philadelphia was basically founded by the Quakers. So almost every private school in Philly was either Quaker or used to be Quaker, like uh, Penn Charter started originally as being Quaker um, and then left. So that was, if you, uh, one of the biggest divides we had, like economically, um, as kids in the area, was if your parents could afford to send you to a Quaker school, um, or if you had to go to the public school system in Germantown. The public school system in Germantown was overcrowded, underfunded, and had a lot of kids who were dealing with uh, a lot of trauma because they were dealing with parents who were dealing with a lot of trauma. And so, you know, um, they had one experience. They're in a room with like 38 kids. Um, many of them really, like today, by today's standards, would need counseling. And then you go over to, uh, in, in this kind of cinder block, you know, industrial building. And then on the other side, the Green Street Friends was, was uh, one of two uh, Quaker schools, Green Street in Germantown at the time, um, and I think still there now. And, you know, we were basically in there, we were sitting on like couches and like a living room setting, and it was like 15 of us. And, you know, what I mean, it was like, it was so different um, between the two. And I went back and forth. Uh, I didn't, but my, because it was so expensive, I went to Green Street for kindergarten first, then I went to public schools in Mount Airy uh, for the next five years and then went back to Green Street in sixth and uh sixth, seventh, and eighth, and then went back to public schools uh in high school. And then ultimately went back to Quaker school to graduate. So I was literally going back and forth. And and part of that was um when I started screwing up bad enough, my <laughs> my dad in high school is like, okay, we're gonna take the loss and you're gonna go to private school. And then and when kindergarten first grade, my dad just couldn't afford um, to do, you know, the, those years of, of, of public. And then I started screwing up so bad that they were able to switch me over. What's looking back is like an incredible amount of privilege, you know, mm-hmm. like it, that's like two second chances I got big time before I even graduated high school, you know? So yeah, it's like everyone is there. And then particularly in an area like that, everyone is not experiencing the same thing, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's complicated and kind of beautiful in a way because there's so many different people going in so many different directions, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, when I was growing up, I, I mean, my mom grew up Lutheran, converted to Judaism. My dad was Jewish, but her second husband was Unitarian. So there was like Christmas trees and Hanukkah tree, Hanukkah, uh, Hanukkah. And I always felt like this is very American. And 
what you're describing sounds also to me very American. I mean, America means a million things to each, to everyone, mm-hmm. but that mix of everything, I don't know, to me is, feels that way. I, I read a lot of questioning of what it means to be American in your books as well from a very different perspective than mine now. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that's just something that, you know, inevitable. I think as an American writer, all of us have to figure that out for forever, how we fit into this. But yeah, I, I, it's not even something I want to talk about. It's just something that's inevitable that you have to talk about. Okay. The last thing I want to ask is after you've written this stuff and you've laid yourself bare, even if you didn't think of yourself as doing that at the time, I think you must meet people who know a lot about you the first time you've ever, first time you meet them. And I'm curious, and also you're writing about stuff that a lot of people don't. What's, what kind of feedback do you get or what kind of blowback, if any, do you get? Do people, um, is it respect? Is it curiosity? Is it uh, a mix of all sorts of different things? It's a mix. Yeah. It's um, invariably when a book comes out, there's some people who uh, adore it and there's some people who, you know, uh, hate it beyond measure. There's people who know how to read fiction and people don't. And sometimes people read fiction. They think everything every character says in a book is, you know, an endorsement, you know, um, on the part of the writer. So those people tend to get upset. There's people who like who praise your book and like, you know, the same the same year that I had, you know, I was on Fresh Air talking about the last novel. And then I was on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Book Review and like all these really nice accolades. Um, you know, I go to reading and they'd be like, I don't think the critics actually read your book because it's so awful after this page. So, you know, <laughs> you know like stuff like that. Um, you know, it's it's all over the place. I think with, as far as people knowing, I, honestly, it's kind of like the, the in, in the novel Death Foretold, you know about the death from the beginning, but you don't know the story. And so, like, I really maybe this is a I shouldn't say this, but honestly, like. There's no way that my writing can capture the vastness of what any experience that I'm having mm-hmm. and the full complexity of any experience that I'm having. What I'm just doing is a snapshot. And the best I can do is a snapshot, even if it's a whole book. So when you think about a snapshot, um, you know, you can freeze frame a video and everyone's eyes are closed and it looks like it, they're miserable. And then you unfreeze it. And a second later, you realize everyone's laughing. Right. So it's not that that's the best I can do is that snapshot. So when people think that they know, like me in the larger experience, they really usually don't at all, but they know that one snapshot. And that snapshot is real, but there's no way it can carry the full complexity of what's going on, you know? So in that sense, I feel kind of protected, (laughs) you know? Like many people don't know about my actual, like, life. And their concept of my actual life is based on what they're reading in the books. Even like other professors, like I wrote a book about a professor in in that book, Pim, other professors assume that I'm an expert on 19th century American lit. No, I just created a character who was supposedly an expert on 19th century American lit. So, like, you know, there's always that distance. I mean, in my life, like, the primary fo- focus on my in my life right now is reducing my carbon footprint and and thinking about how, um, you know, that happened. I lived in Texas, in Houston. Um, I was like, I, you know, I was a meat eater. I was eating beef all the time. I was eating brisket. I was driving 40 minutes to work and 40 minutes back again and sitting in traffic. So sometimes it was an hour and 10 minutes. Um, I had a massive house. Uh, and then, you know, that I was that well, I, like was much better insulated than my little tiny apartment now. But but still like was I was using all these resources I didn't need to be using. And um, 
I, when I moved to Portland, uh, all of a sudden, all these things became, uh, one, it reminded me very much of Philly in a lot of ways, but it all, all of a sudden, my footprint was able to just down. Like, now I don't usually drive. I have a, a like a little electric uh, moped that I love uh, running around in. I take public transit or I bike. And I went, went vegan or plant-based um, to lower it in that way. I, I do work in Eugene and live in Portland. I take the train down. Um, you know, so I, like a lot of that stuff is just lifestyle stuff. So that like is more of what I'm thinking about every day. When, when somebody comes up to me and they're talking about like the mixed stuff in, in Loving Day, they're talking about the issues of, of, of the ideas of whiteness and blackness that were in PIM. To me, that's, that's a thought I had like seven years ago. (laughs) So like they know that guy who was thinking about that question seven years ago. And that's not that that person doesn't exist. It's that, I'm shielded by time and I'm shielded by evolution and I'm shielded about the, you know, the overall unknowingness of, of anything, you know? So I partly asked that question to learn about, you know, I, I'm, I feel fear of sharing things. And uh, I think you've, you've helped. I think it's, it's not unfounded, but I think I don't have to worry about it. And yeah, but the, the question asked then is like, what is the fear from? And I think like for me, uh, like, and a lot of the students I work with, it's um, fear of judgment, fear of having your worst fears of yourself confirmed, mm-hmm. um, fear of, uh, you know, that something you're not even thinking of is going to be judged. And based on this thing, you're not even thinking of, you're going to, people are going to, you know, decide yeah. you're the worst person yeah. in the world, right? So, you know, like that, that's always there, but just like everything, like it's a pain in my soul. Like a lot of it is, is just ego. And so like being able to accept that you're going to be wrong and other people are going to be right. And that doesn't make you a bad person. That makes you a person who's trying to grow, you know, like if you let yourself off the hook like that and go in with humility and be like, I'm going to fuck up. <laughs> I'm going to say some stuff that's like, I haven't thought through, you know, or have a challenge to myself. It's never going to be the things you're worried about. It's always going to be things you're not thinking about at all that somebody's going to get so upset about. But when they get upset about it, even if they're complete jerks about it, um, you, hopefully you can use that to, you know, become more of the, of the version of the person you want to be, you know, which, uh, you know, working through that. So, that, so that's what I keep in mind. And like, I look back at stuff I've written. I, I would not have written those things today, you know, and I've grown since then. And I wish I could go back and change things. Um, I kind of, you know, Walt Whitman changed leaves the grass forever, but that's not really the current climate for publishing. Um, but I'm glad I did it because I, I was able to get somewhere from it, you know. And every once in a while, I have to defend things that I wrote like 20 years ago and sometimes don't believe in. And, you know, I, honestly, it's a lot easier than you would think. I'm like, yeah, I know I did that. And I and and I regret that. And this is why, you know, <laughs> because it's been pointed out to me that, that you know, that this was ableist or this was sexist or this, you know, um, or this didn't take into account, you know, the level of my privilege or, you know, all these things. Um, but I, I really like once I, once I realized you can just be like, yeah, I fucked up. I'm really sorry. I'm trying to do better. <laughs> like all of a sudden it wasn't scary anymore. <laughs> you know, they <laughs> could share everything. And if they don't accept that, it's because they're an asshole, you know? So, you know, cause none of us are perfect. Uh, I think like that could be really freeing just to say, I'm going to screw up. And you're going to get upset. And, and I really hope that I can grow to meet this challenge, you know, of that. 
Man, that, uh, thank you for sharing that because, yeah, I mean, it, it rang true of things I've done in the past and certainly reminded me of what got this podcast started with someone saying, no matter how good the podcast, no matter how good the podcaster, they will always look back with their first, at, listen to the first one and cringe. Yeah. And I was like, oh, just got that first one out there. Yeah. And yeah, it kills me that we're running out of time, uh, especially because I'd love to talk about- Yeah, no, I got to go talk to the provost. <laughs> Because uh, I'd, I'd love to pick up about about sustainability too and the environment. Uh, well, uh, is there anything I didn't think to ask to bring up before we close? No, no. Good luck on your journey, figuring you know going through all this. You know, I think it'll be definitely be worth it. Well, thank you, Matt Johnson. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. See you soon. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.